Trevor Alford, the Team of Brass, from Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. That is his weekly Monday appearance, except on a Tuesday, is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he does uh, every week during his weekly appearance, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. It may not shock uh, any listener unless he or she is particularly sensitive. Uh, it will not shock you to learn that this week we dedicate some considerable uh, time in our weekly conversation to trades. Uh, the trade of Brandon McCarthy, for example, to the Yankees for Vidal Nuno. And this is probably trade 1A, 1B. Trade 1A being the trade of Jeff Samarja and Jason Hamill to the Oakland Athletics from Chicago in exchange for Oakland's top prospect, Addison Russell, etc., etc. That's the point. The trades are the thing uh, we discuss at some level. Also, international bonus slots. International bonus slots. Those are three words I say in that same order, uh, followed by a question mark while talking with Dave Cameron. He provides uh, something like a coherent response to that, as best as best as one could be expected to provide. I also dedicate – it's my fault. I apologize. I dedicate, uh, say, five to ten minutes early on to trifling matters. So if you don't want to subject yourself to trifling matters, fast forward till say, the 10 or 15-minute mark. But if you don't mind trifling matters, perhaps uh, perhaps also amusing – then do uh, do make a point of consuming those. Uh, what, what else you'll be consuming? What you'll be consuming in the entirety of it is Fangraphs Audio featuring Dave Cameron, managing editor Dave Cameron. Which episode begins right now? Yeah, you seem. That doesn't really seem to be a problem for you. That you're late every time? No, no, no. That uh, you thinking that you're right. Oh well, if it didn't happen so often, I probably wouldn't be so confident. Oh, yeah. Well, you were right. <laughs> Does it feel good? Uh, sure. Okay. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Hey, uh, listen. We have. Uh, there are two serious matters that need to be. Addressed before we begin in earnest. Uh, they could, uh, it could be a, just a minute. It could be the entire podcast. But are you ready for these trivialities? Uh, sure. Okay. We're going to approach them. Uh, let's see. Uh, first of all, you tweeted out recently, or no, you retweeted, uh, a tweet courtesy August Fagerstrom. Yep. Is that how you tweeted last who, who, it is, because I had dinner with him last Thursday, and he was very excited that we pronounced his name correctly on the podcast. Is it Fagerstrom? Fagerstrom, yeah. Fagerstrom. Yeah. And he is a person who I believe uh, resides in with the greater Cleveland area? Yeah, correct. And he retwe- he tweeted out, he said, I'm going to have dinner with Dave Cameron tonight. Correct. He did. He did. And, but well, So this did. means that either you went to... The greater Cleveland area, or he went to Winston-Salem. So which happened? Uh, I went to Ohio for the 4th of July. Oh, you went to Ohio for the 4th of July. Big, yeah. big destination for, for the 4th yeah. of July. It was a big old time. So, Wait, what are you uh, doing there? So my wife is from upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is, so never mind. That tells the entire story. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> uh, so she wanted to go hang out with her family and and do 4th of July things, but it's a, you know, 11 plus hour car ride. 
so she didn't want to do it by herself. So I drove to Cleveland with her in the car, and then we put her on a train in Cleveland uh, that took her to upstate New York uh, so that she didn't have to drive any of the way. The train was, you know, $15 one way or something. It was pretty pretty low cost. Uh, and then I tooled around Ohio uh, by myself watching baseball. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's it. So, uh, you know, I, I let her do her family thing, and I did a baseball thing, and, and it was a good time. Um, oh, yeah, that's not, that's not bad. Had, yeah. Now, had you spent much time in Ohio? I have been to Ohio before, but I've never, like, made a point of going there on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've always been through it. I think I've actually – I went to Cleveland uh, back in 2004 or something, uh, back when I worked for Baseball Perspectives. I helped uh, arrange an event at Jacobs Field, as it was then called. Um, so, I've, you know, it's not my first visit to Ohio, but also not at the top of my list of – Places to go usually, so I hadn't been back in a while. Right, but then you did it. And uh, what's this? What's this August Fagerstrom like? Fagerstrom. He is a good young kid. He's uh, energetic. I think I would describe him as. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, he's, I I enjoyed meeting him and having dinner with him. And uh, he was, I think, uh, apprehensive that he was going to get himself fired during the meal. That didn't happen. He's, oh, yeah. He still works for us. So that's, uh, I think, successful. <laughs> uh, anytime you can have a meal with one of your employees and they're still employed at the end, it's, it's a, a meal well done. Now, did you, uh, whose, whose restaurant choice was it? Uh, he picked it. Uh, we went to a place called Melt, which is a very popular, um, grilled cheese place. Okay. Uh, yeah. It was a, it seemed to be like the, it was kind of on the Lakewood side, so maybe more of like a college student, like younger crowd, and uh, lots of beer and, and cheese. So you know those things go together. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, wait, wait, so what, wait a second. There's a what 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 college or university you have there over there in Cleveland? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think there's. I mean, there's Cleveland there's State. Some, Is there Cleveland State? I think there's a Cleveland I, State. Yeah, I think Cleveland State's downtown. Uh, there is. It seemed to be like the younger, hipper part of Cleveland. So okay. uh, Lakewood, I guess, is like a, a suburb, like next door. Uh, it's as describing it as collegey in the way that people were, not necessarily that there I was a college there. All right. yeah. well, there might be. I don't. I don't know. Right. I did. I did not go on a campus tour. So. So maybe uh, in some ways a little rough around the edges, but uh, lots of places to eat and drink. One assumes. Yeah. No. I, Lake, Lakewood was, you know, kind of like. The nicer part of Cleveland. The one night we stayed uh, downtown, I walked to a diner, uh, which had gotten like, you know, pretty good reviews on Yelp for kind of being like a greasy spoon breakfast place. Uh, I actually got there like three minutes after they stopped serving breakfast, which was annoying. But on my way, as I'm walking through like part of downtown Cleveland that wasn't the best, uh, uh, there were a couple of uh, transients. I think would probably be the best way to use the term, who saw me walking, and one of them pointed at me and pointed to the other one and said, hey, there's a white MFer, let's get him. Like, out loud, loud enough for me to hear them. Uh, thankfully, I walk faster than a couple of <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I did not get got, but it seemed to be in the plan oh, to man. get me. Wow. So uh, it's a good thing they are not um, spies or something because yeah. they're yelling your plan across the street probably thwarted their plan. No, that's not good. You know, speaking of spies, I was recently in uh, Germany, Berlin, Germany, and I went to the Stasi Museum, 
which is a which is actually in the former offices of the Stasi itself, which was the sort of uh, the Ministry of Defense or sort of Ministry of this sort of essentially the Secret Service, uh, very robust organization of East within East Germany. They right. would they had little cameras that they would hide in briefcases and pen tops and watering cans. We saw a camera in a watering can. And it was, uh, much more uh, uh, technologically advanced than the two bombs that wanted to get me. Yeah, they just yelled it out loud. Yeah, their chances yeah. of uh, of first starting and then running at least for some number of years as a uh, a socialist state uh, seem uh, poor. Their chances seem poor. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think I would vote for them. Okay. Mostly because they call they called me a bad name. I think you know, so. I think voting may not have been a huge part of, of <laughs> <laughs> East Germany. Yeah. Well, was the big democracy. That then. was that was one of my senses <laughs> that it was yeah. not a giant part. If you have just a party, then that's usually uh, it's usually suppressed. Anyway, so that's beside the point. Um, second point is Cameron. I I I only half apologize to anyone listening because this first item involves the fangraph writer August Fagerstrom, and we learned that you went to Colorado or to sorry Cleveland a little bit, yeah. which is great. Uh, the second point, the second point. Now, for better or worse, Cameron, you understand this. Uh, um, our our readership is composed, I think, largely of young people, and I would say largely of young men. Well, is that fair? Yes, I, I mean I think that's true, but uh, you know I think there's a you know, I, I guess at what point do we just stop describing ourselves as young, right? Like, I think there are a lot of people our age that listen to this podcast. Yeah. And I, I'm starting to feel like I am no longer young. So. You know, you're not. Yeah. All right. Well, you're older than I am. Yeah, I know. It's true. But here's the thing I don't know how to do. And I, and I just want – so I'm returning to the States on Friday. Oh, welcome back. Yeah, right. And shortly like after – Like forever? Like, you're, like Europe has banned you? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. true. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, but our uh, no, we got to go back and start living our lives. Anyway, oh, yeah. uh, 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 you you know, back in was it March? We had a ex- extended conversations regarding uh, the purchase of a car, how to search for a car, purchase a car. Yeah, you bought a Honda Fit, didn't you? No, I didn't. But that's going to be that's going buying a car will be top on the list. And I just want to yeah. ask you, in what order? So if, say I buy a car, right? Yeah. In what order do I do these things? Okay. Uh, I guess agree to buy the car. Say I want this car. Uh, uh, Seek out financing. Seek out and secure financing. So it's two things. Uh, Seek out and secure car insurance. Uh Uh, And then register my car. uh, Register the car. And then when I do register the car – a second sort of question is in whose name – well, in whose name should I buy and register? Should I do it mine, my wife's? If she – let's just pretend – let's just pretend she's got better credit than me. It's not, it's not <laughs> saying it's true, but if she does. So what in what order do I do all those things? So the first thing you want to do is the financing step because that's going to let you figure out kind of how much you can spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you decide to buy a $25,000 car and then you can't get financed for anything over fifteen grand, you're hosed. So – uh, the first thing you should do is find a credit union or, you know, some banks have okay rates, but generally not. Um, but there are places that, you know, even online that you can get, uh, you know, they'll just basically send you a giant check. So you don't have to necessarily just go to your, you know, big national bank or something. There are other options. Um, the credit unions usually uh, better rates than banks, but go in there probably with your wife. 
uh, let them run your credit and tell you, hey, here are your options. Uh, if it's just you, we're going to charge you this rate. If it's just your wife, we're going to charge you this rate. If it's both of you, we'll charge you this rate. And then you can decide who should be on the registration based on that, probably. Um, and so then they'll say, you know, based on your income and credit history and whatever, we'll approve you for this much. And this is how much we'll lend you. Uh, and generally you have to give them like kind of an idea of what kind of car, like you don't have to give them the exact model, but you say like, this is the kind of car I'm interested in and they'll figure out how much it's worth and say, okay, we'll let you go buy that car with our money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once you've done that, then you can go buy the car. Um, it's generally a good idea to kind of have insurance lined up. So if you call an insurance company and say, I'm thinking about purchasing this kind of car, I would like to have insurance. How much is it going to cost me? You're going to want to do all that stuff ahead of time. Um, just because it's easier to do it ahead of time, but you don't start the policy until after you actually bought the car. Uh, then you buy the car, then you register the car at the end. Uh, and I think registering the car, when I bought the car for my wife, I, I was the one, I actually went to Ohio. This is like a, the, the, the segue here is I bought my car, uh, for my wife in, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I flew up there and then drove it back. And so because I was the only one there, I was the only one who purchased the car, so then I registered it by myself. But, uh, you can you can do it either way. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do that. Now, wait, because yeah. frequently a, a dealer will offer it, um, financing as well. Are, do, are they typically offering poorer rates? So if your credit is not great, they're probably not going to offer you a very good rate. If your credit was outstanding, uh, they might offer you, you know, especially on a new car, which I don't know if you're buying new or previously owned. Um, if you're buying brand new, sometimes the rates are better, uh, but the rates are – so the trick is, what they usually do is they'll try and negotiate with you on on monthly payment. And start, oh yeah, in terms I don't of want to talk cost. about that. Yeah, but yeah you, exactly. you mentioned that. You mentioned that. So, so they're going to basically use the financing as a negotiating tool in order to get you to overpay. And so they might offer you like, oh, here's how we can get your payment down by giving you a seven year term at like eight percent or something. Um, so yeah, you, you, it's not the worst thing in the world to dealer finance, but I would say if your credit is not stellar, it is unlikely that they're going to be the best choice. Um, but the nice thing is you can secure basically optional financing ahead of time. So when I bought my car for my wife, I had already secured um, with the bank that I was going to use. They had said, you know, when you go, you just present them this letter and they'll work out all the paperwork right there. But I could have just never shown them the letter and, you know, kept it in my pocket and gone with the dealer financing if I wanted to. And the work I had done with the bank wouldn't have mattered. It would have just canceled out. Okay. Uh, there's not like a fee or something you have to pay. So, you know, I would suggest lining something up with it before you go to the dealer. And then, uh, you know, if the dealer blows you away with like 1% or something, you know, maybe use that. And what's what's a sort of mid-range percent for like a 36 or 48-month loan for a car? I, I mean, I think you're probably looking at something in the 5% range. Uh, they might be, you know, 4 Three, if you get a good deal, I think three would be anything less than three is good. Okay. Um, anything more than six, I was starting to get towards um, usury. Usury, yeah, usury. that's a good word. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're probably going to be in the five percent range, especially if your credit's not great. So, well, uh, actually, my my credit has got has improved by leaps and bounds since I was married because my wife paid off all of the things that I owed. Yeah, that's yeah. helpful. I mean, with my money, to be fair, but I just hadn't paid it off. Hmm. I was just wow. sitting there, and I would get wow. notices. You were just let, like letting debt accumulate when you had the ability to pay it off? Yeah, I don't understand why. Hey, that all right, listen. Let's talk about baseball. Uh, two 
I, I would say I would argue two well two interesting acquisitions. Um, uh, I, first, I want to ask you. So, I, I saw you know I'm sort of experiencing some of this from afar, but that also lends I think an interesting perspective. When the A's trade for Jeff Samarja, that was uh, that got uh, seemed to be quite a, quite a bit in the way of press. Uh, certainly, yeah. like MLB.com, you know, uh, said this is a big deal. Look at, and it probably also not just for the fact that it involved Jeff Samarja, but also for the fact that it involved Addison Russell. It's a big prospect. Yeah, Jason Hamill. I mean, it was probably two of the major pitching pros- pitchers available this summer uh, going away in the same trade. Right. Uh, uh, now, I saw. I think I, I think I feel comfortable saying that I saw a bit uh, in, less in the way of uh, pomp and circumstance when Brandon McCarthy was traded to the Yankees for Vidal Nuno. Correct. Is I that think fair, fair to say? Brandon McCarthy not as good as Jeff Samarja. Not as uh, has not has certainly has not produced uh, has not done as well in, in the way of preventing runs this year. Yeah, or last year. <laughs> right, okay, last year, sure. But a thing he has done this year is produced better park uh, park adjusted um, fielding independent numbers. Correct. He's got a lot of walks or a lot of strikeouts, few walks. Uh, whether that has become because of a trade off where he's maybe centering the ball over the plate too much, which is driving up his batting and, and home run rate. We can't be sure, but it does seem like uh, maybe McCarthy is getting too much of the zone, which is, you know, a good way to get strikeouts and limit walks, but also a good way to get pounded. Okay, right. And is that is that typically, I mean, this is this is sort of uh, dips 101, but has there has it been sort of borne out that um, if players do exhibit a tendency to concede more in the way of uh, – um, um, hits in ter- uh, per ball in play or home runs per fly ball is is it sometimes a function of uh, just as sort of um, throwing too much in the, in the way of the strike zone? Uh, so I think it's one of those things that we can see that can be true, but the pitchers don't generally do enough. And pitchers are generally pretty smart, so they're not usually going to just throw the ball over the heart of the plate. But I think what we can see, especially like if you look at the new heat maps on Fangraphs. Um, and you look at like the league averages or even first specific pitchers, there are very clearly differences in kind of quality of contact allowed based on location, which I think anyone would guess. I mean, you know, guys hit the ball in the middle of the plate elevated more than they do down and away if you hit the corners or, you know, up and in if you are getting just above the, the kind of the plane of their bat. There are areas where uh, quality of contact is higher than others. And so in those areas where quality of contact is highest, the strike rate is also the highest. Like basically right down the middle, elevated, that pitch is always called a strike. Um, so if you just took a hypothetical pitcher who lived in the middle of the zone, he would post a very low walk rate. Uh, and if he faced some bad hitters uh, who swung through pitches and had low contact rates, he would probably rack up a decent amount of strikeouts, and he would get pummeled because he was pitching in the middle of the strike zone. Uh, so whether this is a kind of thing that is predictive or not, I think we can say with some evidence uh, that there is a path to underperforming your peripherals based on location. Uh, If you pitch in the middle of the zone or in areas that are very unlikely to be called strikes but are also very hittable, you're going to post pretty good walk, strikeout, uh, and ground ball numbers uh, and pretty bad uh, contact numbers. And I think, you know, we can look at McCarthy's location data and, and kind of break it down and say, you know, where where has he been pitching? Where have the guys been hitting the ball? And we can see, you know, maybe this isn't all 
100% bad luck. It's not, I think that this is one of those things where it's important to clarify, like, the difference between luck and sustainability is McCarthy is smart enough to not keep pitching in these areas if he has been and say, you know, this, this thing probably won't continue because he's going to make an adjustment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that him throwing a ball down the middle to guy hit 450 feet was bad luck to begin with. Now, uh, for a team like the Yankees, it seems like acquiring uh, Brandon McCarthy is not, not such a bad idea because, uh, well, they have some players who started the season in the rotation who were not there anymore, players who were probably considered to be uh, either very or at least moderately important to their chances of qualifying for the postseason. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Yankees are part of this big, giant, mediocre pile of second wild card chasers. There's like six or seven teams all kind of not who aren't very good, but are all not bad enough to have fallen out of the race yet. Uh, the Yankees are one of those, so they upgraded their team for basically no cost because Vidal Nuno is nothing. Right, and they and uh, they got McCarthy because really at this point, I guess besides Tanaka, who's been fantastic, yeah. and uh, Hiroki Kuroda, who's been not quite as good, I think, as Hiroki Kuroda right. uh, has normally been, but not, uh, but still about league average. Um, that's important. And because uh, I, I believe that neither Ivan Nova nor Michael Pineda nor CC Sabathia are coming back this year. Is that right? Well, we don't know for sure with Pineda, uh, but it seems unlikely given his long injury history. Uh, Nova's definitely out for the year, and Sabathia is maybe out forever with a, if he needs microfracture surgery on his knee, it could be a career ending issue. So. Okay, yeah. So that, that's not great. Uh, right. And so the Yankees, uh, yeah. And so it's a it's a crowded, weird AL East right now at this point, um, isn't it? Because you have uh, the Blue Jays are way ahead, and uh, now the, well, they were up by like weren't they up by uh, a number of games? Blue Jays. Yeah, they were at like a five a five game lead at one point, I think. Right. Yes. Uh, and then uh, right. So Orioles right down to the Yankees. That's I mean they were separated by three and a half games with the, with right. the Blue Jays in the middle. Who anyone could take take that? And then Red Sox are maybe not entirely dead. I mean they've dug themselves a significant hole, but they're still a better team than they have played thus far, and you would think that, a, a, you know, Pedroia and Ortiz and, and Bogarts and some of these guys will start hitting eventually. Right. Uh, Steven Drew is not going to 130 all year. So, you know, not out of the realm of possibility the Red Sox could have a big comeback. Okay, right. Uh, and then, no, so so that's that trade. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I guess I was a little surprised uh, um, with, with regard to maybe what I consider less than uh, overwhelming uh, news coverage regarding the big uh, the, the Brandon McCarthy acquisition, but uh, you've spoken to that. Uh, the other the other deal is big, uh, wh- however you want to phrase it or uh, look at it. Um, you were saying now, obviously Jeff Smart is a big piece. Jason Hamill, uh, what, what sort of season has he been having? Because uh, I don't know, it's possible that I have not been keeping tabs on Jason Hamill. Yeah, uh, if only he was 24 and in double-A and throwing 86. You would love this guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, I think Hamill's having kind of a solid Scott Feldman-ish year, which is, you know, this is the kind of the Cubs, uh, uh, I guess I can't think of the word for it. This is the thing they're doing the last couple of years. Is their MO? Is it their MO? Is it their modus? Yeah, sure, modus sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, that, that'll work. Um so I think, you know, they find Hamill for six million bucks and then, uh, you know, he's definitely improved. He's not a great, uh, pitcher, but he's a solid innings leader, middle of the rotation type of guy. Uh, I think maybe the A's did not need Jason Hamill, but keeping him off of a team, uh, that they could have faced in the American League has some value. I think, uh, m- you know, my guess is when I look at this deal, 
uh, you know, Addison Russell and Jeff Samarja are obviously the top billing, but it's not entirely uh, clear that the A's should have moved Russell for for Hamel or for uh, Samarja straight up. Like to me, I think that's maybe a little bit of an overpayment. So they needed to get a little bit more back from the Cubs. Uh, when there was rumors about the the deal, I suggested maybe the Cubs should throw in Luis Valbuena, who could play second base for the A's. Uh, but it turned out that they got two pitchers instead. But it seemed to me like maybe the 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 A's were like, "We'll give you Addison Russell, but we need more than Samarja." And Hamill was kind of the the best second thing the Cubs could put into the deal in order to kind of convince the the A's to give up their top prospect. Um, so even though the A's don't necessarily need, uh, you know, a, a middle rotation innings leader, he does make them better, and he will not make one of their competitors better. Uh, so let's see. First of all, with regard to let's look at the oh yeah, so right now Oakland's rotation. Yeah. Let's talk about Oakland's rotation because they, of course, had uh, quite a bit in the way of um, injuries. What just before the season and at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Uh, and now they've they've done uh, well. Of course, they had. I, I think you could say a, a breakout or a, certainly a surprisingly good performance from Jesse Chavez this season. Um, I think Scott Casimir has probably pitched well too. And now they add Hamill and Samarja to that. So that's uh, that's a pretty decent rotation heading into what the the latter half of the season. Yeah, they also this guy named Sunny Gray, pretty good. Yeah, right. So yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm willing yeah. to recognize Sunny Gray's <laughs> achievements. Yeah, so uh, I think realistically, uh, looking at the A's rotation, you have some guys who are pitching well now who it is questionable whether they will be pitching well down the stretch. I think, like, Jesse Chavez is a nice story, already has started kind of regressing. I think if you look, you know, from, like, May on, and this is, you know, certainly selective endpoints, and you don't want to just ignore a guy's good performance in April, but since the beginning of May, he's basically been Jesse Chavez, like what he, what he was before, mm-hmm. uh, and he has not been the Jesse Chavez of April, who was, you know, dominant. Uh, does not mean that Chavez, I mean, he's done it for a month, he could do it again, but uh, he's also, you know, been a reliever for most of his career, and so if you're expecting him to give you 200 innings and then also be in the top of his form in the playoffs when he's pushing 220, 230 innings, that seems like a gamble at best. Uh, Scott Casimir has, you know, long history of health problems. Uh, I think hasn't pitched deep into a season since like 2007 or something. Uh, so he's a guy who's currently pitching well, but I think it wouldn't shock anyone if he ended up on the disabled list at some point or was less effective as the innings totals grew. Um, and then I think, you know, uh, the, the other guys kind of got bumped from the rotation, like Tom Malone. They're not dying. They're still around, right? So uh, people are like, oh, man, you're replacing Tom Malone as the area of three and a half. This isn't actually much of an upgrade. Well, I think uh, it's unlikely that the five starters the A's now have are going to be the five starters the rest of the year. Malone's still going to get a chance to pitch, and if he still pitches well, maybe he'll pitch his way back into the rotation when someone gets hurt. Um, but I do think this kind of protects the A's from, you know, being kind of the best team in baseball as they probably are right now. Um, and then getting to September and having a couple of injuries strike uh, to their rotation or have guys get decreased performance from large workloads, and at that point it's too late to do anything. I mean, if they got to, if they didn't do anything and they said, you know, we're happy with our rotation, we're pretty good, we're just going to ride it out, and then Casimir goes down and Jesse Chavez regresses, and all of a sudden they had, a, they had a chance to win, and then, you know, it's middle of September, there's no one to go get. They can't add anyone to the playoff roster, and they're running out Tom Malone in game two. I think that they would have some pretty big regrets. 
Right. Well, it should be noted that uh, as of today, this morning, and, and I don't know what it looked like actually. Um, maybe you have a better sense what it looked like right before the trade. Uh, but as of today, at least uh, per the playoff projections th- uh, that we hosted the site, the uh, Oakland has the best chance overall, just above 16% of winning the winning the World Series. Right. I think they were around 13% before the trade. Uh, and I think our rest of the season win projection for them was in the 550 range. Now it's like 565. Uh, so there's certainly a noticeable bump from, from adding these guys. Uh, and I think, you know, any time you're adding a, a couple of pitchers over, you know, 80 innings or 90 innings, whatever it is they're going to be able to throw before the year's out, you're not going to dramatically change the fortunes of a team. It's, it, all of this is going to be on the margins. Uh, but I do think that this significantly raised the A's floor to where um, it's going to be tougher for the Angels to catch them in the AL West, so it's now much less likely the A's play in the wild card game. Uh, and I think, you know, avoiding the wild card game is a pretty big deal, <clears throat> especially if, if Seattle's going to uh, end up being the team who wins the second wild card, which is a possibility. I think they're probably projected to win that right now. Uh, if they were able to line up their rotation in a way so that Felix Hernandez was pitching in that wild card game, that's not a game you want to play in. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a lot of value to the A's of kind of holding off the Angels and winning the division. Uh, now, with regard to the Cubs, of course, they have had, or they do have, um, um, Starlin Castro, who, you know, has, uh, maybe he's, he's uh, had peaks and valleys in his first, what, four seasons as a major leaguer. Uh, but there's still value there. They have... Uh, Baez, uh, still, I don't know if Baez is, uh, if he's moved off shortstop yet. No, he's still playing shortstop, but that probably won't last much longer. Right. Uh, he's still capable of hitting, hitting, hitting well though. Um, and, uh, and has some sort of, uh, major league playing time in his future, one would assume, because, uh, cause he's at AAA. It would be the nearest future. Uh, and Addison Russell, uh, has been excellent in in somewhat limited time at I, uh, I guess double A it was. Oh yes, very good. Yes, they, Liberty uh, has a see, seen someone go by that she would like to go say hi to, and she's now running out the back door. Uh, but uh, Addison Russell is very exciting. Well, insofar as he's what twenty or twenty one, and twenty yeah, and is posting excellent, uh, certainly excellent defense, independent numbers uh, offensively in the minor leagues, and I think overall excellent numbers. Yeah, no, I think uh, a lot of people have focused on this trade from the Cubs' perspective of trading pitching for hitting when they already had hitting and they didn't have pitching. And there's been a lot of discussion of, like, oh, maybe they should have gotten a pitcher back or where are they going to find pitching. Uh, I think very clearly uh, we're kind of in the year of the Tommy John surgery and, you know, pitchers blowing up their arms. This is the way you rebuild. You stockpile as many good young position players as possible, and then you find Scott Feldman and uh, Jason Hamill and Jake Arrieta, and you develop pitching out of nowhere. Uh, and that is much a much more secure path to winning than trying to build around a, a staff full of young guys who throw 96, who might not throw 96 in a couple of years, or they might not throw at all. Uh, so, you know, I realize the Cubs now have like 14 shortstops, but, you know, Javier Baez is probably never a major league shortstop long term. Uh, and there's some thought that maybe Addison Russell is better off at second base. Uh, you know, so if... If you're going to keep Starlin Castro, uh, you move Russell to second, you move Baez to third, you move Chris Bryant to the outfield, and there are the Alcantara's around as either kind of a utility guy or maybe he moves to the outfield as well. Uh, there's room for all these guys. I don't think it's a, a huge issue 
uh, to where, oh, well, we have all these shortstops. You have guys who might be playing shortstop who could be better served in another position, uh, and these positions are certainly needs for the Cubs. So I don't think this is an issue where, okay, the Cubs already have a shortstop and they traded for a shortstop. Well, you know, if you have uh, a bunch of three or four win players, they'll play anywhere. Yeah, put him right, put him anywhere, and they'll be yeah. fine. They'll be really good uh, right fielders if that's exactly. what they need. Right. Yeah, there's, there's no problem having too many good position players who can hit. Right. Uh, okay. Right. So that and, and you're right. It is. It is. Uh, you you remarked upon it, but um, the. The development this year of Jake Arrieta, who's currently posting a park-adjusted XFIP 30% better than league average, after you know ha- demonstrating promise certainly in his in his uh, earlier years, but never realizing it necessarily. Um, that's yeah. There there is some hope there. I, I mean, I don't know how, with how many pitchers you can do that, but that does indicate that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's more so than ever, but it's certainly not impossible to uh, to find pitchers. Yeah, I mean, I think in this day and age where run scoring is down, the strike zone is bigger than it's ever been. Um, you know, strikeouts are up. It is not that hard to turn a guy into a decent starting pitcher. I mean, we were just talking about Jesse Chavez, a career reliever who's been one of the better pitchers in the A's this year, and they're the best team in baseball. Like. Teams that have kind of built these stockpiles of young arms have generally found lots and lots of disappointment as those guys have gotten hurt or attrition or whatever. Like, they have not developed into what people expected. Teams that have just kind of, you know, kept plucking uh, pitchers out of nowhere, and I think the Cubs are a great example of this. They got Travis Wood and, like, a, the Sean Marshall deal, which wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't considered a, an elite prospect at the time and turned into a pretty good pitcher for them. Uh, Arietta and Feldman and... Um, you know, even Ryan Dempster had a good year, uh, kind of at the end of his career, kind of out of nowhere. Um, and then this year with Hamill, like, I think they've kind of shown that they have the ability to identify undervalued pitching in multiple forms, and it's not that hard to go get a guy to give you a couple hundred decent innings. That's different than saying it's, you know, easy to develop an ace. Uh, and if you, if you thought Jeff Samarja was Felix Hernandez or Clayton Kershaw, then there's an argument for not trading him, because those guys are scarce. But Jeff Smart's just probably not Clayton Kershaw or Felix Hernandez. He's probably Homer Bailey uh, or something, you know, in that range. And I think when I wrote up the contract demands he was reportedly asking for a couple weeks ago, I noted that there's a lot of similarities between Smart's and Bailey. And last year, Homer Bailey looked like a really high-quality young starter, and this year he looks like a mid-rotation guy because of uh, too many runs. And so I think if you have a guy like that, it doesn't make sense to pay them $100 billion. It makes sense to trade them, get some young talent, and then go sign someone who can give you 95% of the performance for 10% of the cost. Yeah, of note, and I'm not sure if this is not necessarily analysis, but it's a relevant comment at least. Uh, the Cubs today, I believe, because they're playing a doubleheader against those same Cincinnati Reds you just invoked, and uh, the Cubs have two pitchers making their major league debuts, two pitchers in different stages of their careers. Uh, one of them is Kyle Hendricks, who's sort of a, a control guy with a plus changeup. Um, who might uh, might be interesting, and then uh, Siyoshi, I believe it's Siyoshi Wada, who was originally given uh, eight million dollars over two years by Baltimore, promptly uh, needed his ligament replaced, and uh, but has actually pitched well at AAA this year. So, yeah, he's, right, he's I think both of these guys are kind of the kinds of guys who can do just fine in the National League. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't be any good. 
But, I mean, I think as you've been a proponent of guys like Jesse Hahn and some of these kind of nondescript pitching prospects who come up and pitch just fine and do, do quite well, I think we've seen that it's not that hard to take a guy who throws strikes, stick him into an environment where there's a big strike zone, there's no national, there's no designated hitter in the National League, and they can give you a couple hundred decent innings. Right. And it might be just a question of, like, of the, uh, the emphasis, what, what, what sort of emphasis teams are placing on pitcher skills, right? Because if you have, uh, you know, and we, I, we've definitely treated this subject before, but if you have a, a pitcher who can throw, who can command this fastball and has, uh, something that could serve as an out pitch that is, has more, uh, you know, vertical movement than it does horizontal movement, then that could be that could be a reasonable pitcher right there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that one thing we've seen uh, over the last few years is that a bunch of guys who, have, you know, maybe less than overwhelming stuff have performed just fine in the big leagues. Uh, and stuff certainly matters. And you know, when you look at guys like Kershaw or Felix or you know David Price or whoever, you're like, oh yeah, you if you throw 96 and you you have good breaking balls and good changeups, you can dominate hitters. But, you know, there's a decent amount of guys who are performing, you know, at a solid level who don't have that stuff, who are much, much cheaper. So when you're asking about asset allocation, it probably makes more sense to throw your money into the more scarce position players who can hit and field and run the bases and kind of do everything and just make do with okay starting pitching rather than throwing a whole bunch of money at having, you know, three or four guys throwing 96. Right. Uh, let me. I want to ask you one thing. You're you're uh, on the on the precipice now of having, um, having a serve. Uh, what is this? Uh, something your obligation. What's the verb fulfilled. we use? Fulfilled. Yeah, fulfilled, fulfilled your obligation. Yeah. Right. That's the verb we use. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you. I saw a couple news pieces today uh, by way of MLBTradeRumors.com. You cur- you familiar with that site? Mm, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, a couple instances in which teams, one team acquired an international bonus slot from another team, mm-hmm. right? So in one case, we have the Rays acquiring three international bonus slots from the Marlins. Correct. And in a second case, we have the Oakland A's acquiring uh, a player from the Brewers in exchange. So the Brewers are exchanging or are, are, are acquiring the international bonus slot. Right. Now – Especially in the in the first instance, when I see that the Rays are acquiring something from the Marlins, um, my biases set in, and I don't know if they're deserved in this particular case, but I always I have a habit, as I think probably many people do, of regarding moves that the Tampa Bay Rays make as good moves, and those that the Miami Marlins make generally as uh, moves that are designed to to save money while uh, while um, failing to improve the product on the field. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> okay, all right, right, fair. But so is the what are these moves doing? I, I, I know that for me, I can admit to the feeling to uh, regarding the these uh, international bonus lots as a murky area in my overall knowledge of uh, baseball in in uh, transaction analysis. Right. So basically, how it works is that instead of draft picks, in as you get for domestic amateurs. Uh, teams are given pool assigned slots and there's the amount of slots they have and how much they're worth are kind of based on their prior year record. So bad teams get more and good teams get worse, get fewer. And, uh, you can sign players kind of up to, 
the amount you're given, plus if you want to pay some penalties, you know, there's like overages for 5%, 10%, 15%, whatever. Uh, or if you think you can ignore these limits entirely and spend whatever you want and just not be able to compete in next year's uh, international market. But essentially the Rays, uh, they signed, who I believe Baseball America rated the number one prospect in the international market this year. Uh, but, but doing so was going to push them over their pool limit. So you can trade for pool limits in order to avoid the penalties that go along with going over uh, the limit. And since the Marlins were apparently not going to use their international bonus money, they traded their slots, not the money necessarily, but the right to spend that money uh, to the Mar- to the Rays for some hard-throwing reliever who doesn't have good command, because they like these guys. Um, so essentially the Marlins said, we're not going to spend a million dollars on international free agents, so let's take this money that we're not going to spend, uh, almost like a credit limit, and let's give this to the Rays and let them spend it, and in exchange we'll get some power arm who might or might not ever turn into anything. Okay, yeah, um, so it seems, I don't know, it seems like it's good to have a player that uh, you sign, a, right, a, 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 maybe out of the Dominican, you sign him and then he becomes a good player. That seems like a thing you'd want. Yeah, I think it doesn't always, uh, doesn't usually work that way. You sign a lot of guys out <laughs> of the Dominican and one becomes a good player. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of these high bonus guys are, the bust rate is extremely high. When you're trying to project a 16 year old's bat when he's 23 is very difficult. So you're signing based on physical tools and athleticism and sometimes those things translate to the major leagues and sometimes they don't. Um, so these things are lottery tickets for sure. Uh, there are examples of, you know, highly touted international prospects becoming really great young players. Uh, and you really, you want to have those guys. Uh, but for everyone that becomes a superstar, maybe 10 or 15 flop. Uh, you know, I think Michael and Noah was, um, you know, kind of one of the more prominent, uh, international signings of the last decade. I think the A's gave him $4 million not too long ago, back when the A's, you know, $4 million was a lot of the A's. It still is, but it, you know, Back then, it was even more, and they weren't a team that normally were lavish spenders in free agency, in international free agency. Uh, he was considered maybe like the best pitching prospect uh, in in a long time in in, uh, in the international world, and then he promptly blew out his arm several times, and now looks like he might be a reliever if he's anything at the big leagues, and was basically a waste of money. So, uh, you know, the bust rate on these things is very high. Signing good young talent is never a bad thing. I wouldn't say that the Rays have certainly secured a future superstar, though. Okay. Maybe we should what, – what does Ben Badler say? I think he would say, uh, I agree, Dave. Good point. <laughs> but that's just me impersonating Ben. I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like it is. I should I should ask Ben Badler what he thinks about all these international signings. That would be a better uh, – if you wanted the information, that would yeah. be a better plan. Yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to email him as soon as we're done. I'm going to say, hey, Ben Badler, are you free uh, this week? If, I mean, he may not be because he's, you know, he's busy or whatever. Right. Um, but, uh, but maybe I'll email Ben Badler of Baseball America. I'll say, hey, Ben, may, hey, f- we've known each other for a long time. Right. You passed him in college. <laughs> I did. Twice. twice I did. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I helped you get your education. Come on my podcast. I think I helped him keep his education at arm's length. Okay. Uh, well, while giving, While helping him get a degree. Right. I think it's, you hel- you helped him graduate. I helped him graduate, right? Yeah. Which probably helped him. I mean, I don't know if he's writing for Baseball America already, but if you can, I mean, most places they like a degree, right? I think it's a helpful thing. Yeah. Right. Although yeah. a college degree isn't what it used to be, is it? It is not. 
Um, I think it depends on the college you go to. I think the research that I have done uh, and did before I chose where I was going to go to school uh, chose as a anyway. Uh, <laughs> the research I have done shows, or the the evidence shows that uh, a college degree from a low cost state university is actually pretty valuable. The return on investment is very high. A college degree from one of these like super prestigious, expensive universities where you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans and pay them off over the next forty years, not as high. Right. Yeah, the return on investment is pretty high though if you have parents who can afford to pay for it. Right. Then it's not your investment. Then <laughs> it's a return on someone else's investment. Yeah, uh, right. And then you're just a beneficiary of generosity. Yeah, I know. I would. But if love... you're if you're trying to put yourself through school, I maybe a state school is better than Harvard. Yeah, I know about. I wish I could find some of those parents. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's tough in after you're born to be like, man, I want I want to find new parents. Yeah, is it possible to put yourself up for adoption? I think probably you can divorce your parents, right? Or yeah. become legally emancipated. Yeah. So if you become legally emancipated, then you put yourself up for adoption and you get new parents. What about as a 34 year old man? Uh, I think I think the the waiting list is going to be pretty short. Now listen, here's here's a weird question: Am I allowed to be adopted? <laughs> this is a new new weird question. Am I allowed to be adopted by someone questions? by someone younger than me? Um, probably. Okay. Yeah, we both work for someone younger than us. So. Yeah, we do. It, it, he has a paternal air about him. He's sort of in a, he's a little bit distant, like a distant, not distant, angry father, just distant, sort of uh, aloof. But I don't mean it like a negative thing. He's just he's a little, yeah, whatever, a little distant. It's okay though. Yeah. Okay. I don't I don't know what to say about that. Who do you think Who do you think is more invasive in the um, uh, the Stasi, which is the, like the secret police, essentially of of East Germany or David Appleman into our own our conversations. I think probably the Stasi. Yeah, all right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. All right. You have uh, fulfilled your obligation. You've done it. Oh, all right. All right. All right. Well, stick around for a second. But in the meantime, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That's Dave Cameron, the famous managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.